All actors love to put on uniforms and run around and play soldier. Right. It's a blast. It's really fun. Um, but there's also very little danger in it outside of catching a cold because you're wet or maybe twisted your ankle. And I always, outside of the combat, outside of that, I, I always wonder how we get that other ethereal quality of what it's like to, you know, to always be in uniform, to, you know, to give up, you know, big chunks of your life to, uh, to something like the Army and the Navy or the Air Force or the Marines. Welcome to the National Defense. The National Defense is dedicated to the men and women who serve our country in active duty, our veterans, and their families. We're here for you. God bless you. We love you. On each episode, we look for people and stories with some connection to these heroes. I'm Randy Miller. Tom Hanks is a two-time Academy Award-winning actor and a strong supporter of our country's military and our veterans. He has starred in and produced such great military epics as Saving Private Ryan, Band of Brothers, and Greyhound. He also serves as chairman of the Elizabeth Dole Foundation Board, which supports veteran caregivers through their Hidden Heroes program. And just, you know, just the biggest star on the planet. Tom Hanks. I'm so tall, guys, I can see you from where I'm <laughs> He's a giant. That's how big, that's how it, big it, I am. You know, the cool thing, I, I mean, there are many cool things about Tom Hanks, but the, the thing I love uh, about you, Tom, is that, you know, one second you're playing Sully, Sullenberger, and the next thing you're in a Carly Rae Jepsen music video. <laughs> hey. Right? Hey. Too hot. Both. Both, I'm going to tell you. Both of them. High points in my career. Yes. I gotta say. Yeah. <laughs> you 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 would be amazed at the cred that you get for working with Carly Rae Jepsen. Such a great thing to have you on the show because it, you know our audience of military duty military and, and veterans and their families. I mean, you know, you've had a long association with the military and with veterans. You know, you've had a hand in bringing some tremendous military movies, Saving Private Ryan, Band of Brothers. What is it that kind of draws you to those projects? Well, I tell you, going back an awfully long way, I, I spent uh, formative, very formative years uh, growing up. If I'm going to say I was in second grade, third grade, maybe and going and in, in, in fourth grade uh, as a kid. And I lived in Alameda, California the former home of the Alameda Naval Air Station. Mm. And this was uh, Vietnam. Uh, the Vietnam War was just ramping up. And uh, Alameda is actually a very small town. It's this little island. It's only connected to the mainland by a couple of tunnels and a couple of bridges. And the, uh, the north end of the island is very residential, but it's also that's where the Navy population was. Mm. So I went to school... I'm going to say two-thirds of my classmates all had parents in the Navy. They were living in Navy housing. And uh, we would hear the jets landing and testing and, and flying over all the time. But there was it, – it, it, funny, it wasn't like a jingoistic um, uh, atmosphere. It was the workaday atmosphere of being in the military. You know, it was uh, – it was uh, moms, uh, single kids running around right. making ends meet, dealing with the, the big uh, absence of of the fathers. Uh, most of my, you know, back then it was mostly fathers on on board the ships, 
as well as this kind of like conversation you'd hear amongst um, all my all my classmates about where their fathers were, and a lot of them were <laughs> a lot of them were in the fabulous, beautiful, sightly um, confines of Subic Bay in the Philippines. Right. But a lot of them were also on um, they were on ships, they were on the uh, they were on the Hornet, they were on the Enterprise, they were on the Coral Sea, they were on the Oriskany. Uh, they were everybody was gone and um uh my dad it was funny my dad was not married at the time and so he was a single parent uh and we ran around like uh essentially like wild feral wolves taking <laughs> care of ourselves cuz uh, he worked long hours uh, but all these other kids were were sort of like being raised by single parents too uh except their their dads would um would come home about once every six months, and man, did you know when the Hornet came in or the Enterprise oh, yeah. came in? Because yeah. these, the, everybody I knew was just sporting something fantastic, you know, right. a new tape recorder, uh, you know, some kind of new watch, you know, all this PX kind of stuff. And so I was, I was, um, I was aware of, I think, the the, the daily. Um, the daily struggles, you would put it that way, the daily burden, or just the daily realities of families, of people, career folks in, uh, in, the, armed, in the armed forces. And as I got, as I began to become kind of like a uh, student that, you know, naturally actors sort of are, right. and started reading for pleasure and becoming, I think, more socially conscious, um, I was always attracted to that concept of, uh, of, uh, of grown service. My dad had been in the Navy in the war. He hated it, hated it, <laughs> had nothing good to say about his time right. in the Navy. But he was he was in the Navy for about four years, you know. So so there you have it. It's not like it wasn't a small chunk right. of, his, of his of his life. Just always been attracted to the historical impact of those men and women who served their country, put their lives on hold, even uh, invested, you know, the twenty years that would go into a military career. Or the uh, or the five years that or whatever however long their enlistments are. It's been a uh, uh, it's been a bit of a of a study into that kind of mindset. Now you know, I wonder. I'm probably talking too much now, but I no, wonder no. what you know. Okay, we've done stuff. You know, Saving Private Ryan and Band of Brothers in the Pacific. We've done a substantial amount of stuff, and sometimes I, I like to have conversations beyond the fandom. Of how we did right. those stories, right. you know, this glamorous, you know, it's yeah. you know combat and it's you know the Battle of the Bulge and it's Guadalcanal and and uh, 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 Okinawa, what have you. And I always say, okay, I understand. We can we can rig up. Act, all actors love to put on uniforms and run around and play soldier. Right. It's a blast. It's really fun. Um, but there's also n- very little danger in it outside of catching a cold because you're wet or maybe twisted your ankle. And I always, outside of the combat, outside of that, I, I always wonder how we get that other ethereal quality of what it's like to, you know, to always be in uniform, to, you know, to give up, you know, big chunks of your life to, uh, to something like the Army and the Navy or the Air Force or the Marines. You're a guy, though, Tom, that that wants to get it right. And, you know, there cannot be a bigger critic or a bigger uh, judgment call from somebody that is in the military, somebody that was uh, in combat. And I'm I'm sure that's why you want to serve them and you want to get it right. But uh, that stamp of approval means something to you. Well, it does. It does very much because uh, look, if if we're just going to make this stuff up, what's the point for crying out loud? Right. You know? Right. Call it you know 
set it in outer space or something like that. Make Starship Troopers again, in it, which is which is a damn good movie, by the way. <laughs> um, uh, but I was we look. I was also very lucky at the very first thing uh, that we I did. Uh, I couldn't quite believe that I, I got to. Uh, put on a, a pretend to be a soldier and it was in Forrest Gump and uh, we <laughs> I'm sure you guys know of uh, Captain Dale Dye who has made not only his living but also his mission to take what he calls foo foo actors and um, and turn them into guys that aren't just wearing their medals in the right place right, <laughs> right. Uh, we, we he, he his ability to number one beat the living daylights out of you as an actor is is paramount but he's also has he also has an extraordinary ability to motivate you to want to be authentic hmm. to get as much of it right but you know here's one thing that happens in movies all the time that I'm sure that anybody drives nuts it drives everybody nuts why are all these guys in the pl- platoon so close together yeah. <laughs> why, why are they always right next to each other? First of all, the director wants everybody in the shot. Right, that's one right. thing. And the other thing is every actor wants to be in the shot. That double whammy, because that's the thing, hey, you know, we, we should not, we shouldn't be to get, we should be stretched out more. Right. And, right. and uh, we, should be, we should be spread out. Um, but one of the, then what comes of that is that when, in, in particularly in some of the, uh, in some of the long form miniseries, like the Pacific and the Band of Brothers, we, uh, I, got to be able to run that kind of quality assurance you know yeah. i got to say look here's one of the things we're going to do we're not going to have those beautifully crafted shots with 12 guys who are all bunched around together we're <laughs> going to spread them out we'll we'll grab shots some other ways and it, it it might be just a little bit of a of a of a visual but that little bit of a visual of where is everybody oh they're they're spread out by yeah you know uh, the two or three or four paces, and they're using hand signals in order to communicate. Well, that just brings it a little bit closer to what the mission is in the first place: is to is to show those tiny details and try to get them right. Um, I'm 62 years old, and I remember very well. You know, Vietnam tore up the country. Um, in a, in a way that, that and, and I was I was in my early teens then, in a way that I just kept listening to everybody, and I think, well, you know, that person is right, what they say. Well, no, that person's right, what he's saying as well. Hmm. I don't know if there's particularly bad guys here. It's just this ongoing kind of like, it, it, it's, how do you make sense out of, out of this incredibly turgid, turgid time? Now, I, I think that I think that the country has come an awfully long way about certainly dealing with veterans. And I think it's because, um, everybody has, has become aware, not, and I I think long before I ever started doing anything, but became aware of what the cost was. Although I will say, and and I'm only, look, I was, I was an actor. I just took a job when Steven Spielberg called me up and said, Hey, I'm going to try to make this movie called Saving Private Ryan. I jumped up and down. I said, please tell me I'm not too old to play the captain in this thing. In fact, guys, I was way too old to play the captain in that thing. But he let me do it. And I think that because there had not been a, a, a big attention paid or given to, to that era or that time, honestly, uh, there hadn't been a World War II movie made of any consequence for probably the better part of 25 oh, right. or 30 years. Yeah. 
Um, and when Stephen made that movie, I think it just, uh, I think it unclogged an awful lot of drains of memory and out it, out it became to come. It's one thing to read the great books, you know, by Anthony Beaver or, or Stephen Ambrose or all this stuff. I mean, you know, the, the, the reading of the history is something, and now there's like, you know, the, the military channel is on and the history channel is on and it all gets into like tactics and maps and stuff like that, <laughs> yeah. which is all great and, and fun for the people that are like-minded and are interested in it. But when you get down to, uh, you know, the fact that these were boys that went off and did this thing, well, then yep. you start touching on to the, that sensibility of, uh, of, uh, of the price that they paid very specifically. And, um, and how long did they have to keep paying that price? When did the, when were they able to let it, uh, to finally put it behind him. Look, I think I was really brave when I was eight. You know what I did when I was 19 years old, guys? You're going to be very <laughs> impressed with this. I was so brave. I had the guts to put all my belongings in the back of my Volkswagen and drive across the country by myself. Thank you. you know, and, Thank and, you. And Tom, it was hard. I was scared. I'll bet. That car could have broke down in Winnemucca, Nevada. And what would I have done, guys? Well, you, you sound like such a big boy. You sound like such you know, And, Tom, that's always how I feel uh, and how we feel when we have wounded warriors on the show. Yeah. It's like, you know, you got, you got a guy that's carrying a 40-pound pack on his back and he's he's got uh, artificial limbs, and he's running a marathon. Well, you don't complain about anything that day. I, I no. mean, uh, I don't care if you got a you know a, a knife sticking out of your neck. You're not you're not going to say a word. I got to tell you, I was just entertained by you because I went back last night and watched Road to Perdition. Oh my! Oh, okay. Which I I got to ask you, how was that to work with Paul Newman? Okay, all right. So okay, there's moments of uh, when all you can all you can experience is 100 percent pure intimidation. <laughs> well. So, you, 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 you find out you got this job and you, and you're all look you're all wrapped up in all the demands that are that are going to be made of you and that was a very that was a very particular movie very particular role right you know uh, we, we, we were going we were throwing deep on that one and then the call comes in from the powers that be and they say <laughs> listen okay so Paul Newman Paul Newman is going to be in this movie. <laughs> Paul Newman is going to be playing a surrogate father figure to me in this movie. Paul Newman and I are going to have a major breakup in the course of the movie. And it, when it comes down to it, I'm actually, because I'm a hired, I'm, I'm a, a very, very violent enforcer with a Thompson submachine gun, I'm going to gun down Paul Newman <laughs> in the streets of Chicago on a rainy day. All you can do is... Uh, Oh, you, you just got to face the void on that one and try not and try not to make a big stupid fool of yourself you know because you want to foam all over a guy like Paul Newman right oh, off man. the bat you got a million questions for him as well as you just want to like study and you, I found myself fighting the urge to say you're just so great I just think you're so great I mean, <laughs> I mean you mean so much to me and you're and you're and you're just great the, the way you did that in HUD and the way you did right, that in, right. in all those movies you know you want to do like, <laughs> you sound like an listen that scene where you and Paul Newman are sitting at the piano is such a quiet little special scene I mean, that's one of those movie magic kind of deals. We practiced the piano for a while. Now, now I'll tell you, here's a, here's a background story. Originally in the screenplay, 
we were going to be, we were at a wake, um, right. an Irish wake, and we were going to actually be doing Irish line dancing, you know, that kind of like right. clog kind of thing where you like hop up and you stomp your feet. And I was in, I had been in rehearsals for you know, better, a couple of weeks in order to get ready for what was going to be a scene in which uh, the three of us, uh, Daniel Craig, the future uh, yeah. James Bond, and myself and Paul Newman, we're going to be celebrating, as I guess Irish people do, do, and we were going to dance. We were going to do a line dance, and that was going to be the, the, the union between the two of us. But Paul said, <laughs> all right, here's the problem. I have no rhythm whatsoever. And, and our, our uh, director, uh, Sam, said, uh, well, you know, we'll, we'll rehearse it. And he said, no, 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 you don't understand. <laughs> I have no rhythm whatsoever. So uh, in order to come up with a scene that, in which the, the, the surrogate father and the son uh, would, would, would share something deep between us, Sam came up with uh, oh, man. Uh, sitting next to each other and playing the piano, I, which I, was a uh, you know, necessity often improves the final product. Hey, I, I'm reading the Sally Field memoir right now. You worked with Sally Field. Yeah. As, uh, how was that experience? She is the most, I'll tell you, don't, don't, don't be fooled. Don't be fooled by Sally Field, Gidget and the Flying Nun. Don't, <laughs> yeah. don't assume oh, no, no. that she's, at all. She's very candid in this book. She, you know, we were, I got news for you. We were all dumb 16-year-old, 15-year-old kids at some point who were just delighted to be invited to the show. Yeah. You know? Um, the, the two, the, actually, I've worked with her uh, I, more than once. Uh, she, of course, we did a movie together called Punchline. Oh, yeah. In which she was... She was just beginning, I think, to get her formidable legs um, uh, uh, in the in in the next phase of what her career was there. You know, because she was one of the producers of it, and she was she was tough. Um, and then uh, she played, of course, my mom in in Forrest Gump, and she did it. I didn't even I didn't even know what she was. It was no maintenance. She just showed up and was this lady that eventually <laughs> aged. And uh, we I. Uh, Getting together, I literally had a, I had a mother and son experience with her. Wow! She was wow. She was she was so instinctive and never talked about it. Wow. We just did it, and then she uh, later on she directed the twelfth episode of, or maybe the eleventh episode of a series I did. Uh, called From the Earth to the Moon about the Apollo space program. And she directed the episode that was about the wives of uh, the Apollo astronauts and at the prices they paid. That yeah. was actually, that was like the most impressed I've ever been with Sally hmm. because not only did she know what she wanted to do, she also knows how movies are made. And movies, movie, there's a lot of people that like put a lot of stock in bluster or, um, uh, you know, ceremony. In making movies, there's a lot of people who like to like you know claim their turf when they're making a film. Um, Sally just knows that that's a that's a wasted time and it's a and it's a wasted effort. And and she ended up doing something that was so quiet and so subtle, mm. and yet so sure-handed that uh, I just I just think the world of her. And I, uh, uh, that book is probably some. I'm going to guess there's some juicy stuff in there. Oh yeah, some juicy. Now I haven't asked you how you're how you're feeling. And I, I, I'm sure you've been asked that a thousand times today, but uh, how are you and Rita 
doing? Uh, we we have we have not we got over our, our symptoms of the COVID nineteen uh, by I'm going to say it we were diagnosed on the 11th of March. Uh, we were in the hospital for three days, where they kept an eye on all of our the serious stuff that could have gone wrong, and also kept us from giving it to anybody else. That was one of the other important things about sure. it. Um, the uh, the symptoms we experienced, Rita, Rita was worse than I was. She was she, she had a bad fever. Um, she had a horrible nausea, and she lost uh, her sense of taste and smell at a time when that was not quite known to be one of the symptoms. I had a low-grade fever, but I had just just cracking body aches. Uh, I, honestly, I, I felt like I had a I had a, a, a body made out of saltines. I just I just felt like my bones were falling apart, and was just incredibly achy, very fatigued, slept most of the day, had no energy and and no no real thought yeah. process. Once those went went by the wayside, we're we are uh, we we were. I don't know. We're we're fine. I don't know any other way to put it. But we have the we were tested. We have the antibodies. I was able to go down and give some plasma. That's a good thing. That's great. We just found out though that now the antibody numbers are fading. They're not as right. strong as they were, and so nobody's a doctor here. And even the doctors we think says, well, we think eventually you won't have any more antibodies. But you but you did you your part. You could get it again, and we think it won't be as bad as it was the first time, but all of this stuff is to be to be determined. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but, you know, the main thing there, you, you did your part. And, by the way, after seeing Rita on the cover of AARP magazine, she's doing fine. Oh. <laughs> I mean, she looks – oh, my uh, gosh. It looks like she's not old enough to be on AARP magazine. Oh, uh, no. I know. I, 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 I keep – I keep thinking I married a woman 30 years, Mike. <laughs> hey, we're talking to Tom Hanks, fully recovered, back on his feet, ready to go here in the national defense. And Tom, you know, you've always been such a, uh, not just your movies, but such a friend to the military and to veterans. And that's been happening for the longest time. And I also know that you are not a guy who puts his name on anything. And you are working now with the Elizabeth Dole Foundation, the Hidden Heroes Program. And, and talk about that a little bit, if you will. Liz Dole, Elizabeth Dole, the, the uh, as I like to call her, the Velvet Tornado, um, <laughs> gave, me a, gave me a call years ago because um, she and her husband, Bob, Bob Dole, uh, who just turned, God, I think 96 right now yeah. and, and issued a, issued a, 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 a beautiful uh, public statement about the COVID-19. Um, he was uh, he was out at the he was out at Walter Reed for a very long time uh, with a with a health health issue you know and being turned in by the by the VA and they they saw all these families wives kids girlfriends husbands um, of veterans who were there for treatment and they were for there for a very long time and they took they took a look at that and realized that there are. Uh, there is an unheralded call to duty for the families of uh, the soldiers and the veterans that are coming home that yeah. have life-altering changes, disabilities, wounds, missing limbs, as as well as the uh, uh, the more uh, gossamer aspects of being alive. You know, addled brains and difficulties coping. Right. Um, and they they didn't have really anybody who was an advocate. 
They didn't have any sort of champion. They were essentially individual families that were doing, you know, going at each going at each day with their uh, wounded uh, uh, veteran at home, their loved one. And Elizabeth Dole saw a need and says, "Let's do something for these people." So that, that's twenty four seven too. I mean, that's that's well, no never, time off. Never, never ever stops. And so the, the the great promise, I think, that we're that the Hidden Heroes organization is trying to trying to work out is make that all part of the same community, so that when there is one family that could use could use a hand, there's another one that is so close by. And as not just not just other wounded uh, families of uh, wounded veterans, but also just the general populace right. that can do things like, hey, let me help you with that bank loan. Let me fill out these papers for you. Let me mow your lawn and look after your kids. Let me give you guys a night out so you can go to the yeah. movies and have a regular yeah. kind of life. It's you know, it's it, it, it. You almost want to say it's like touchy feely, holistic, organic thing, but really what it comes down to is just being good neighbors for people who yep. are in who are in need. Uh, and uh, obviously, right now uh, they're dealing uh, with a ton of uh, difficulties because of the the, the social distancing and the locking mm-hmm. down of the virus. So, more than ever, um, the uh, the good work that Hidden Heroes can do is going to be appreciated. Well, and that's the thing I tell people all the time if they're complaining about going through what we're going through. I go, okay, take your situation, your circumstance, and right. now you also have to defend our country. You know, yeah, there's that. Right. So you also have to be you know, one thing to be separated as much as they are, but now be right. separated and be talking to someone who can't go anywhere and can't do anything. And the kids aren't in school and uh, the, the money's not coming in the way it was. It's an extraordinary moment. Now, how, how, how old are you? I, I just turned 60. Oh, OK. So you and I are more or less the same age. Now, I remember. I'm going to say it was sometime in uh, 1960, 1961. I was uh, I was one of I was one of eight kids. My dad had remarried, and uh, there were there were eight kids. I was the youngest, and they had just developed and or finalized the polio vaccine. Yeah. Um, that you know, polio had uh, had had just been uh, running rampant in in certain quarters. And there was no protection from it that, that that anybody knew of. And the polio vaccine was finally developed. And I remember ev- I lived in we lived in Pleasant Hill, California at the time. And from my five or six year old memory, every single family in Pleasant Hill, California, got in a car, drove out to the new community college, miles long traffic line of traffic. And everybody in a car was given a little paper cup with a sugar cube with a with the polio vaccine yeah. that was that was inside it. Now, I don't remember anything other than seeing the entire city mobilized like that, all going there to one sort of one complete common purpose for something called a polio vaccine. All right. Took it. Um, you know, it. The, that was that was that was an instance in which the common good was on display and in action, and it was for absolutely everybody. And guess what it did? It neutralized yep. polio as a disease in the in the society. I, you know, I had those kind of memories and the, the work that an awful lot of people are doing right now. Uh, yeah, what do you, what do you, I mean, makes, makes me feel more, uh, more optimistic than pessimistic. Well, I was going to ask you about that, you know, cause I've heard people say lately and a lot of my friends have said it, uh, that they think despite what we're going through that, you know, we're going to come out of this thing much better than how we went in. 
I think we're getting uh, uh, a, a practical lesson on the, the more common qualities of what it is to be good America. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we, we look, it, it's a, it's the same sort of thing as when when a when a, um, a tornado rips through a town man. those people come together. There's people out there that, as Fred Rogers himself would say, automatically become the helpers. Yeah. And I think I think this is an opportunity for all of us in order to not well, take stock. Hey, the, people are going broke. Businesses are, business are good. It's going to take a long time for yeah. all of us to come out of this. And there are those of us who have a lot. And because of that, much more is expected. Yeah. And everybody know everybody knows who that is. And there's other people that, um, uh, you know, a huge amount are just going to say, man, I'm going to need some I'm going to need some help getting getting through this. This is an example. I don't want to overuse it because it's far too easy. But we're in in this for the duration. Yep. And there is something every single one of us can do, including stay calm and follow up, follow instructions. Start doing that. And uh, we are going, I believe, uh, we're, uh, I think that we're going to come out of this with a common memory of our lives that is going to be divided much the same way, um, dare I say it, World War II was in which there was a time before yeah. COVID, there was yeah. a time during COVID, and there will be a time after COVID. And I think it is going to change us. And I think if uh, if uh, if we hold uh, a couple of you, you don't yeah, look, I, no one has to be rabid about this, but be, they just has to understand there's something every single one of us can do. What <laughs> is that? What is that? Yeah. Give it a little bit of thought and then follow through. Yeah, it's we will be we will be all right. Yeah, you talked to we talked to a couple of. World War II vets on the show, and they're like, this is nothing. <laughs> you know, I mean, when you hear that, it's like, well, you know what? That's pretty good. That's a, that's a yeah. pretty good sentiment. Yeah. Uh, what's the first thing Tom Hanks is going to do when you get to leave your house? Uh, I, listen, I'm going to have a dinner with all the family, and we're just going to sit around, and we're going to laugh our asses <laughs> For as for as long as possible, I think that's the that's the that's the thing that that uh, uh, I'm I miss, and I think a lot of people miss is yeah. that the, that that look you, you don't get to choose who your family is, and it's always a you know not like your friends they're your family, and there are times when you all just do naturally hunker down because you have that one magnificent thing in common, which is your you know your genealogy. So I'm going to get together with the kids and the grandkids. And uh, I'm gonna uh, uh, make a. Uh, I'll be in charge of the uh, the bad Mexican food. I'll make the. Uh, I'll make the. Uh, I'll make the refried beans with the cheese and the quesadillas. Somebody else can wrangle the salad. Someone else can grill a chicken or smoke uh, smoke up some uh, some uh, tri tips. We'll get on with it. We'll be fine. Looking forward to that day. How many times have you hosted uh, SNL? You know, I'm not. I'm not really sure um, because. There's hosting, and then there's showing up and doing cameos. Yeah, and then there's going to the uh, to the anniversary shows. Oh. So it all ends up being kind of a blur. I think I'm in the double digits. I'm not. Oh, you gotta be. Sure. I got. I got a. I got a question for David S. Pumpkins. Yeah. Any questions? <laughs> <laughs> Let me tell you about doing David S. Pumpkins. That was. There are things that. I mean. I've seen a lot of comedy stuff, and and uh, man, when you when you hit it, you hit it, and that was just immediate, know. right? Uh, well, it, what I knew something was going on because as soon as it aired, my son texted me, mm. uh, Chester, 
who said, oh, Dad, David has pumpkins, with a bunch of exclamation marks behind it. He didn't even say it was fun. I didn't know if he was ragging on me or, you know, right. telling me I did a good job. Oh. But when we, when we did, when we started doing that sketch, I was mostly concerned with, it takes place in an elevator, right? Right. Okay. In the history of motion pictures, <laughs> fake elevator door technology <laughs> is exactly the same now as it was in yeah. 1908. <laughs> it's That's a true. guy, a stagehand, <laughs> with a, a, a you know, with some ropes and pulleys that are attached to a door, who has to get a cue on time. He's got to open it perfectly and close it perfectly. I mean, it can't slam shut and then have a little gap that's open, right? Yeah. yeah. And when we began doing it, we said, uh, Tom, what do you think of, uh, it was called uh, what was, it was called the Tower of Terror. And yeah. uh, that's the, that was <laughs> right. the sketch that David S. Pumpkins premiered in. <laughs> and he said, well, Tom, what do you think of Tower of Terror? Should we, should we do that? And I said, well, I'd be worried about the elevator doors, man. I mean, you know, if, we, if, if that, that doesn't happen perfectly, the sketch isn't going to work. So I didn't know what I just put on the clothes they told me to do. Oh. and came up with something goofy. And, uh, oh, so and the elevator doors worked. Yeah. I have a feeling that if that stagehand on the elevator doors had not done the perfect job, we wouldn't be talking about David S. Pumpkin. Right? <laughs> Absolutely. Tom, thank you again, man. I, great pleasure talking to you, Randy. Thanks for having me. Always great pleasure to talk to you and uh, hope we can talk again soon. You got it. And that completes our mission here on the National Defense. Your mission is to subscribe and leave us a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You've been listening to The National Defense. The National Defense is written and hosted by me, Randy Miller, and executive produced by Nate Heron. Be sure to visit us online at thenationaldefense.com.